Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you. And if you're home and you're, you're battling sickness, may the Lord comfort you and heal you. Romans chapter 4 this morning. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, we will stand and we will take verses 2 and 3. Romans chapter 4. Old school faith is the title of this morning's message. And hopefully you'll see where that emphasis lies and how it will be beneficial to us as Christians. So, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Please be seated. It's a little tricky sometimes to choose what verses to select because sometimes the verses just create questions that um, might take some time to get to. But that sums up um, a large part of our faith, just those two verses. For many, Romans, this letter, can be a little difficult to understand, and likely because it goes against natural reasoning. It appeals to spiritual reasoning, however. Spiritual insight, of course, is better, but for that, we have to be dependent upon the Lord. Natural thinking is uh, natural thinking will keep the beggar on the dunghill because he must have done something to deserve to be there. Where spiritual thinking looks for a way to get that beggar off that dunghill. And Hannah's words, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. The Christian is to be focused on solutions, spiritual solutions, according to the Scripture. Like Paul said in the verses we read, for what does the Scripture say? It means everything to the born-again believer. Lazarus the beggar, the outlaw on the cross, human failures saved by Christ, spiritual Spiritual approaches, according to the scripture, that's what we are to be about. And if God can find a way to save the outcast soul, may I learn to stay out of his way. May I be useful to him. And his salvation, of course, manifested throughout the Bible, detailed for us in this Roman letter. He details salvation. And it's also difficult because he's... In this Roman letter, he's largely dealing with the complexities of Judaism and Gentiles coming into the church. Where does that line up with the Old Testament? There's a lot going on here to sort through. <clears throat> and this also explains some of the difficulties. How unlike heaven it would be if people could buy their way in or earn their way into heaven. It wouldn't be heaven. It would be more of this stuff. Bribes and it just it just wouldn't work and and God has made it clear that is not how it works because that doesn't work. The one whom Jesus saves is the one who comes to Him and remains submitted to Him. Jesus emphasized this in John's Gospel in chapter fifteen. Abide with me. I'm not fooling around. Stay with me. Is it too much to ask? Now many claim to believe in salvation by faith but not salvation by faith alone. This is big. We believe in 
Salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, through the scriptures alone. This is a big part of fundamental biblical Christianity. The word alone is the divide which separates us from many other groups. And one in particular is Roman Catholicism. One of the great differences between the Protestants and the Catholic, Roman Catholics is how we take that word alone. It was the watchword of the Reformation. Now, I'm not a Protestant. I, I did not protest and come out of Roman Catholicism. But I understand the history of it and how uh, meaningful it is. And you want to say, well, it took you long enough. <laughs> you can't say that, but it, uh, it is a very important part of understanding historical Christianity. Roman Catholicism, for example, believes in salvation by faith, but as I said, not in faith alone. They believe in the value of the blood of Christ, but not in the value of the blood alone. There's got to be something else. And, and works is a large part of it. Here's, here's an example. They accept that Christ is the mediator between God and man, but not that Christ is the mediator alone. That's where Mary comes into their theology, unfortunately. But what does the scripture say? There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's, it can't make it any clearer. And so what happens to those who read those words and dismiss it? Roman Catholicism acknowledges the authority of the scriptures, but not the authority alone. There are subsequent authorities, alternate authorities. In Romans 4 that we're going to consider this morning, the portion I hope we get to, Paul demonstrates that salvation is by faith alone, apart from any deeds, apart from any rituals, by faith, by faith we come to Christ. I believe scripture alone is the rule of God for man. All secondary authorities must come under that primary rule. For instance, the preaching from the pulpit. It is under the authority of the scripture. That's why we give cross-references to validate the points that we make. And many times they're lost on the audience because the audience doesn't know the scripture and may not care to or just hasn't gotten there yet. So all secondary authority is derived from the authority of the scriptures and is therefore subject to the scriptures. The pulpit is subject to the Bible as we Christians want to keep it that way. Sola Scriptura, scripture alone, establishes the spiritual and the moral behavior of our lives. It is our authority and we love it so. I love when Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow torrents of living water. How can you improve upon that? How would somebody have the audacity to say, yeah, but? But they do. Whole doctrines, whole denominations, whole religions, whole millions of people, if not into the billions. God grants forgiveness of sinners, and they are received through faith alone, excluding good deeds. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And he's going to go old school on this. He's going to go all the way back. To make his point to the Jewish people. As far back as he can go amongst the Hebrews. 
Because before Abraham was, there were others that were believers also, and they were not Hebrews. It was Abel, it was Enoch, Job. But for the Hebrews' sake, and that's who his audience is, we're going to find that out in the first verse, he goes to Abraham. Now, looking at verse 1, keeping all that I said in mind, or at least not understanding that we're building on the things I just said because of what Paul has in this section of Scripture for us this morning. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? What about Abraham and how he lived? The question and answer format. In anticipation of objections. That's why he's doing it this way. That's why he presents this with a question. Having already explained that man has nothing to boast from God. In chapter 3 and verses 20 and 21, he lays that out. He's reasoning from the scripture. He's coming back around. He's hitting it again. Because it was that entrenched in their thinking. Illustrating his point through the Bible. Using the great Jewish hero of faith, Abraham. What about Abraham's deeds versus Abraham's faith? That's what he's saying here. That's what it means, that first verse. He's addressing the ethnic Jewish people, and that's why he says, what about Abraham, our father? wouldn't say that to Gentiles. Ah, proselytes could fit into that, those converts from, from Gentiles that converted to Judaism. But he's talking to the Jewish people. And this is not a slam against uh, any ethnic group. He's dealing with theology, the thinking of the people when it comes to God. He himself being, being Jewish, tracing the Jewish faith back to Abraham, who pleased God. How did he did that? do that? That's what he's asking. How did Abraham please God, class? By faith, not ritual, not deed. You say, well, I, I get that. Yeah, but this was so important then, and it's alive and sick still. Today, there are many people who still think like this outside of Judaism. But before we get to that, this had to be dealt with. It would have stripped the church dry. And uh, this is old school. The circumstances of Abraham's life teach a proper relationship with God. That's why we, we love Abraham. If you were a private detective and you were hired to follow Abraham... He'd probably be the easiest character in the scripture to follow. You just go from altar to altar. Because he littered the landscape with them. He'd go somewhere, build an altar, leave that altar. The, the pagans wouldn't do that, but he did that. And he'd go on and make another altar. A man who loved to worship God. And, and, but and with this relationship with God, God promised to make Abraham a great nation. And to give him a land we know as the promised land, which Satan is determined to mess up if he can. We're watching this go on. Remember to pray for Israel. God called Abraham to Canaan and promised him the land and a son. Now, those were essential elements. If he was going to be a great nation, a blessing to all peoples... How is he going to do this without land? And how is he going to do this without a child? His wife, Sarah, was barren. And uh, the only way that this could go forward with any degree of success was through faith. It was not something Abraham did to bring these things about. It seemed impossible. 
Yet he believed God. And for this reason, the Holy Spirit points to Abraham's faith as a template to all believers. I mean, just Galatians 3.6, Hebrews 11.8, and 11.17, they're worth reading about Abraham. I'm not quoting them because of time. He says here, has, fa- has been found according to the flesh. We're rereading verse 1. What then shall we say about Abraham, our father? Has found according to the flesh. What has he found according to the flesh? Well, the flesh in the scripture has a couple of meanings. The context will give us that. Flesh and blood, for example, that's the physical body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There has to be a, a change. and This body won't make it into heaven. And we're all glad of that. But then the flesh, just the flesh, is spiritually that part of me that does not listen to God. Doesn't even want to listen to God. Cannot be redeemed, cannot be fixed. It has to be overcome through the spiritual nature, the spiritual man. So the flesh here, though, that in verse 1, is his human effort. What about Abraham, according to his human effort. He's trying to show the Jews that you can't earn favor with God. You can, earn, you can gain rewards with God, but not salvation. And so, verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. you imagine getting to heaven and say, Well, you owe me. It is laughable, right? I'm glad you're laughing. That, that's, it is laughable. And yet people live this way. Even many churchgoers still think this way. I don't think they think this way here. Because we'd get them. It's a joke. Even, even this hero has nothing to boast to God. No IOU markers on God. No contradiction exists between what Paul is saying here and what James is saying in chapter 2 of James' letter. James speaks about serving faith. The outcome of believing faith. There's the faith that uh, you have when we trust God. You come to him and you receive salvation. And then the outcome of that is trusting God as you serve, as you do things for the Lord. Those of you who serve in the church, you, I hope you depend on God uh, as you go about your duties. You're trusting God's going to bless you. You're going to get everything right. He's going to protect you. That's serving faith. And Paul speaks of saving faith, trusting the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about here, through the cross of Christ. And if you claim that God justifies do-gooders, then you have to be asked, on what grounds do you make that statement? You don't have to answer. I know what you... You just made it up. You heard some... You're repeating what somebody else made up. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that God justifies, in other words, saves the souls of do-gooders. In fact, Paul's going to go on to say that the ungodly are saved. We'll get to that soon. Faith is the root. Deeds are the fruit. Nothing... uh, I like the way this is in, under the circumstances of this life. I mean, in heaven, things will change for all for the better. But right now, it's a bit rugged, rugged. There is this sacred fallacy. When I say sacred, is you better not touch this. 
Or else you're going to run into an argument, resistance. You'll be disliked. That faulty argument is this, that man has some amber, just even an amber of goodness, which all it needs is a little fanning for it to flame. For God to like him. That there's something good enough about us that God will like. It's the other way around. We're sinners. And all our righteousness like filthy rags. That's what the Bible says. And, and I'm, I'm not even stressing the, the emphasis placed upon that scripture verse that the Hebrew places upon it. Suffice it to say, your righteousness won't impress God. Faith is what appeals to God, and for good reason. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Had Eve just trusted God's word, things would have been different. Snake would have been on the menu that day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway, this, this cherished fallacy of depending on one's righteousness and one's religion is rebuked throughout the New Testament. And again, it wouldn't be heaven if men were allowed to earn their way in, to buy their way in. And the Bible, in this fourth chapter, obliterates this ruinous assumption. Using Abraham and then David, biblical heroes, to, to show this truth. To show that no human being may earn their salvation. Verse 3 now, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so there's the apostle at it again. Shouldn't all Christians roll that way? Shouldn't we all? What does the Bible say? What does the scripture say? I don't want to hear about the latest fad or what everybody's doing. What does the Bible say? That's what I want to know. I cannot have fellowship with someone who claims to belong to Christ but denies that the Bible is trustworthy. Now, I didn't say they're my enemy. I didn't say that I could not be friendly with them. But I cannot enter into that sweet fellowship that we enter into with other Christians because these are carriers of a spiritual disease called doubt. Doubt is ruinous. It's everywhere. Jesus said that his word would not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will not. So I choose to agree with Christ and disagree with those who disagree with Christ. And I really don't care too much uh, what the consequences to that are. I would like the person to say, you know, I like your approach better. I'm going to also believe that. I, that's what I would like. But if they say, well, uh, we can't, you know, we can't be friends anymore. Well, then, then that would be the way it would be. So I happen to disagree with those who dis disagree with Christ, and I'm not ashamed of that. But there's no malice in this. It's not that I'm looking for their destruction. It's quite the opposite. Present them with the truth, looking for a solution to that dumbed-down approach to Christianity. Well, the Bible, you know, it's not trustworthy. That was printed in hell. And if you're foolish enough to believe it, you may find yourself locked out of heaven, not careful. We are experiencing great influences in this country, throughout the world, uh, by those, many those who lead in churches and attend churches because they are under the sway of the world, the sway of the devil. And part of this is because they value experience 
over Scripture. Remember the first clause, or the first question of verse 3. What does the Scripture say? Well, there is that element that doesn't care what the Scripture says if it doesn't agree with what they want. And they give the silent treatment to the verses that condemn such behavior. They cherry-pick the Scripture. Jude said, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Experience must always be tested by doctrine, and doctrine comes from Scripture, not from what we feel. This is old school. Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah appealed to his own people. So why don't we go with the Bible? In those days in Israel, before there were you know, sidewalks and asphalted roads, uh, the pathways were cut by the local people. When Jesus gave the parable of the sower, he said some of the seed fell by the wayside. Because if you had a big open field and you were a farmer, well, folks aren't going to go all, walk all the way around your field. They're going to cut through it. Well, it was customary that the people would stay on one path and wouldn't cut, you know, different paths trampling his crops. And so when the farmer goes to sow the seed in the parable, some of the seed fall on the wayside. That's one of those pathways cutting through his field. And that was acceptable. And this is the case, you know, many places you want, if you stay on the beaten path, you're safer than if you try to trailblaze something as, as just a local person or a visitor. Well, Jeremiah was using this as metaphor. And there in chapter 6, he says to his people who were off the path, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. And then he adds this, the prophet does, because he doesn't want anybody to forget that this is what they, some of them did. But they said, we will not walk in it. We don't want the old school. I, 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 there are some things we don't want. I don't want an old school dentist. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't want any pain at all. Uh, but, uh, but when it comes to the faith, I want to know what God has established and has declared immovable. And uh, that is a bulk of the scripture. We are a different people because we have a different leader and a different pathway to that leader. And we're unashamed of this. And we need to stay that way. In fact, we need to also recognize why. Why are we unashamed? Well, because if we're ashamed of it, well, that's one problem that causes other problems. But one big thing is how will you ever be used as part of the solution to lost souls if no one knows you're a believer? If no one knows or sees the passion you have for Christ... If what, well, maybe you're not very inspired as a Christian. Maybe you've been slapped around enough in life that the passion is gone. You are not excused. You and I as believers are required to remain inspired no matter what happens in our lives. Whether we're swallowed up by a big fish or not. We are to remain passionate about Jesus Christ. This goes back to not feeling, but believing. I don't have to feel this. Inspiration is not an emotional thing only. I have to know it. I, I, don't, I don't have to feel, boy, I'm not in the spirit today. Yeah, I am, because I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter my, what my mood might be. 
Why would that be something that would be frowned upon by any believer? You know, there are many authors who are afraid of seeing the holiness of God. But they're not afraid to make up things about God, which is the opposite, or an element of being opposite. We are to take our instructions from the Lord and not those who tamper with his word. In Leviticus 10, uh, Moses told Aaron that there was a specific way to approach God and a way not to approach him. There in Leviticus 10, we read about that story, and Aaron lost two of his sons because they were disobedient. And Moses, this is what I meant, when God must be regarded as holy. The irreverent give space again to those verses that they like, and the silent treatment to the ones they dislike. May God always find us with lofty ideas about him according to the scriptures. Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus says the high and lofty one, Who would want a lesser God? Who would want, you know, the low and measly one? And yet, people are making them up all the time. Here, look at this. Where'd you get that? I just made it up. Well, creativity is, is not what God is looking for when it comes to understanding who he is. Obedience. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to re revive the heart of the contrite ones. He's saying there, my people are going to get beat down and I will revive them. But they see me as holy regardless of their feelings. They are inspired more by truth than circumstances. I want to be that guy all the time. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. You can be hurting very much. Uh, I think Job was hurting very much when he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He wasn't singing that. It was a lamentation. But it was also a declaration of faith. And he never departed from it. But he came real close. <laughs> he came close. I want God to be lofty. You can hear, you can hear the inspiration in Isaiah's voice. Thus says the high and lofty one, that's my God. Those who come to God must see him as holy, as pure, undefiled. May we never surrender our high opinion of God to anyone, not even to our treacherous affinities, our flesh. Abraham believed God. Not Abraham behaved and God liked him. He believed God. There were times that Abraham got it wrong too. Abraham answered when God called, I believe. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. More attitude than action. Interesting, the Greek word used here by Paul for accounted is where we get our English word log. Like you, not like a log of wood, but uh, of timber. But a log, like putting it into a book, an entry into a book. Abraham believed God, and God logged it into the Lamb's book of life. You could say it that way. You could see it that way. When you put the New Testament into the equation, which you have to do. Verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. 
Well, you seek to earn salvation by doing good deeds. You're saying God owes you. And he's already made that clear. God is not going to be indebted. The wages are not counted as grace. And that's what they should be counted as. Saving grace is not earned, but it is given. And it is either received or rejected. Belief receives it. Salvation is free for all or not at all. If you come to receive it, only Christ can secure it from us. And that's what he says. If you have your Bibles, you look over at Romans 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But Paul said, you know what? That's not enough. They want a short little letter. They want a short little sermon. I can't do that. There's too much information. There's too many things going on that have to be dealt with. So he kept writing. Repetitive, some of it, from different angles, but all of it necessary, all of it beneficial to those who would avail themselves of it. But as debt, if you think that God owes you, actually, you're the one in debt. By this standard of of one's failed, by this standard of God rewarding me for what I do good, by that standard, then what happens when you don't do good? Is it subtracted from the account? That's fair. I don't want fair with God. Not when it comes to my judgment. I want mercy. I would not ever want to see myself, give me what you got. I mean, that would be it for me. I just want pardon. I, I want God to not impute my sin. Um, any system of payment and debt is one sinners cannot afford. And that's what Paul is making. But the Jews, again, many of them, they didn't see it this way. And there was so much going on. Uh, We haven't even got, you know, many slaves were coming to Christ. What would have happened if the slave was said, you you told a slave you can come to Christ, but you still have to honor the Sabbath and be circumcised? Well, how would his master ever allow those two things alone to take place? I'm going to be off of work for about a week or two. I have to have this rite of circumcision and I'll be out of the picture. The masters wouldn't put up with that. What about, could you imagine a slave going to his master? I've given my life to Christ, and I'm off on Saturday. Wouldn't work. Paul could see that. God showed him that. But many of these Jews were holding that tight in their fist. We're not giving this up, but then how can you reach the world? Abraham was to be a blessing to all peoples. Well, he can't be a blessing if you're holding on to the ritual over faith. That doesn't mean all the rituals were useless. They were symbols and signs. But they weren't what got the work done. Faith is what does that. And so, uh, in verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. His faith is logged into the Lamb's book of life. But to him who does not work, Now, of course, Paul was a dynamo when it came to working. He's certainly not saying we can all be lazy. The Bible rebukes lazy. In fact, until he writes to the Thessalonians, if someone doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That's a form of a death sentence, is it not? Don't feed him if he's lazy. (laughs) That's uh, pretty straightforward. But the believing ungodly are to be reckoned as righteous by faith. 
while they're still ungodly. That's what it says. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Otherwise, no one would get saved. God doesn't say, you know, if you could just clean up your act, I can get you into heaven. I know a guy. It doesn't work that way. If you can just believe me, I can clean you. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all. This is basic Christianity that is so difficult to share with people in such a way that they get saved. This is the fact. This fact makes it the gospel. That the ungodly are the ones that God saves. Now, there are other ungodly ones that will not be saved because they won't come by faith. And I'll quote Jude later on uh, where, he, where he says that. Let me just make sure I have the right place. Let's go to a commercial while I look at this. And uh, Okay, since I'm here, might as well. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly. One, among them... Of their ungodly deeds, two ungodlies, he continues, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Four. Four ungodlies. In that section, Jude is talking about those who opt to remain ungodly without God's touch on their lives. Paul is saying here, those who are ungodly, who believe in the Lord, God will cleanse. But those who opt to remain ungodly, well, they made their bed. It's not rigged. You have a say-so. Those who hear the gospel have a say-so. What's the point of hearing the gospel? It is not rigged. He says here, but to him who does not work but believes. This is another reason why infant baptism has nothing to do with salvation. An infant cannot believe. Uh, Maybe the infant doesn't want to believe when they become a grown-up person. You have to wait until they're old enough to be able to answer the question, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Savior of the world, sitting on the right hand of the throne of God, coming again? God looks at the heart. With the whole story with David and, and Samuel, you know, God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the heart. That's what he's after. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, overcoming doubt. But, but who believes Who believes him who justifies the ungodly? Wait a minute. Who saves the ungodly? The pronoun is in reference to God, Christ. Again, notice that it is the ungodly that God justifies, or else none of us would be loving the Lord as we do. God's salvation is received by the individual sinner and not a saint. This goes against natural thinking. But as I started out, we're not to think naturally. We think spiritually when it comes to spiritual matters. You can think naturally. You're going to fix a bicycle or something. Sure, feel think naturally all you want. Although when I go to fix something, I'm very spiritual because I'm asking God's help every step of the way. <laughs> He's like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I hope this doesn't set anything on fire. <laughs> so, while well, I'm sensible enough to leave those things that I, I know this about le- electricity. I don't know anything about it. So, Anyway, it is his growth in grace, the individual's growth in the grace of God that comes through God saving the believer. And, uh, you know, our failures in life, they're going to remain. 
But the Lord knows how to take care of those things, and we know that he does. And that helps us have drawn near to him in full assurance of faith with a pure conscience, as the verse continues to say. We're cleaning out what is wrong in our thinking. We may not be able to achieve our goals, but we understand that his way is right, and that's the way we would like to have it also. And yet there are many that put their hope in a, in a sinner's deeds. That's what you do. If you say, I'm going to earn my way to heaven, you're putting your faith, your eternal destination, in the hands of a sinner. You. You're the sinner. And you think those sinful hands of yours can fashion salvation for yourself. That's foolish. And it's against the scripture. And it will damn your soul. And if you cherish that thinking, if it is to you a sacred cow, then again, you made the bed that you're going to lie in, but God offers you a better way. And it is the old school way when it comes to salvation, and it is through faith. It was not circumcision that gained approval from God for Abraham. It was his trust. And it will be the same for the Gentiles. That's what he's telling the church in Rome. God accepted Abraham on faith, not circumcision. And God is going to accept all these Gentiles coming to the church also the same way. His faith is accounted for righteousness. And everyone is ungodly until they come to Christ. Every single person is ungodly until God puts his hands on their life. And God initiates salvation, and he provides the opportunity. In verse 6, just as, David who, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now, this is an interpretive rendering or summary of Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. What did David do wrong? Well, we know <laughs> the big ones with Bathsheba and, and her husband, Uriah. We know about that. What did he do to get out of it? He submitted. When he was finally busted, <laughs> he submitted. He, he just trusted. Uh, we, let's develop it a little bit. Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Thank you. That'd be me. And I pray it would be all of you. So now he... he points to King David, the greatest of Israel, the greatest of Israel's human kings, and one of the greatest Old Testament sinners. He's showing that no human being needs to be excluded from God. If David can be saved, Paul is saying, then anybody can be saved. If Abraham could not be saved by his deeds, then nobody can be saved by their deeds. If David could be saved by faith, then anybody can be saved by faith. Why does this not appeal to everybody who hears it? Why doesn't a, a sinner hear a Christian say to them, God wants your heart. The rest will follow. But give him your heart. You can't earn your salvation. You're a sinner and you know it. I know it too. So let's stop pretending. You would think, you would think they'd say, you got me. Well, sometimes they do. They'd get saved. But many times they don't want to hear it. 
change the subject, attack you, clam up. We know it. This is part of the fight. I, I think of these things when I say to myself, would I have gotten saved if a Christian approached me with the gospel? Would I even have understood what he was saying? Because the carnal man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, nor can he know them. And for, again, I don't want to be repetitive, but for my salvation, the Christian witness did nothing but irritate me to the point where it drove me to the Bible. And that's where I got saved. But that's me. Uh, other is very complicated stuff. And so my point, my point for bringing this up is when we pray for the loss, pray with fervency of spirit. Understand that you are in war. When you are praying for lost souls, you are interceding on their behalf. They don't have to know it. They don't have to care. They don't have to like it. It's between you and the Lord and the spiritual war that we wage. Verse, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, he's quoting Old Testament. And, of course, in the Old Testament, the sin could only be covered. And not until Christ died on the cross were sins washed away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything else was kofar, covered before that. And so, uh, pointing again to David, both Abraham and David experienced God's undeserved kindness. What's a single word for undeserved kindness in the context of God? Or people too. Grace. Grace is undeserved kindness. If you deserve the kindness, it's not grace. You've earned it. But grace is what we call it. And it is not picking on unbelievers to disagree with them about God. So let's not be ashamed about that. We're likely their last hope, but don't expect them to make it easy. Verse 4, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So David said to Nathan, when Nathan said, you're the man, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. What if David said, yeah, you better get out of my court. Well, he would have been like all the other kings that remained evil. But that's not what happened. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Man, that's pretty serious stuff. Can you imagine the look on David's face? Can you see the intensity in the eyes of Nathan? Nathan was unhappy with the whole thing, that David, the sin that David committed. But he was certainly, he was David's friend, as well as the prophet, David's spiritual leader. And imagine David, the man who wrote scripture, had a spiritual leader too. That's quite impressive. And yet, uh, I'm sure Nathan was rooting for David. Verse, I would love to, just, you know, I mean, anytime I think about a teaching from the Bible that I would want to teach, it's always David, the life of David. It's always my first thought. I see so much Christ in his life and my life. It was acted out, the New Testament acted out in the life of David. It's just a man who just loved God, but had this flesh like the rest of us. Well, verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Well, God, Paul made it clear in chapter 2 that real circumcision is a matter of the heart. Something the Old Testament prophets also said. 
And that fact applies to water baptism also. It's an act of the heart. Anybody can get wet, but not anybody can be wet in the name of the Lord, linking it with, all, in, with the context of Scripture and all of its meanings. And uh, anyway, for we say that faith, he says here in verse 9, was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Abraham trusted God when everyone else didn't seem to trust God. In fact, his house was in such a spiritual shambles that God said, get away from your father's house and from your people to a land that I will show you. And it didn't, you know, Abraham, he, he set about to do it, but he did drag his feet a little bit. Well, how, I mean, it must have been very difficult. I'm not judging him. This is, this is a reality that goes along with our Bible heroes and we, we should rejoice in that because there's a reality that goes along with our lives as born-again Christians. But what causes Abraham to be approved by God was trust and trust alone. That's what did it. There were no supplements. Well, I'll trust you and I'll also go ahead and give you a sacrifice. How about that? I'll throw that in as a bonus, God. Aren't you impressed? No, it was just sheer trust. In fact, it would be another 17 years before Abraham was circumcised. That's pretty, that's remarkable. That You would think the Jews would hear that and say, wait a minute, that's a good point. He was accepted by God 17 years before the circumcision. Yeah, Gentiles, come into the church. You don't have to do this. Verse 10, and we'll take that to verse 12. I, I really wanted to be finished in 30 minutes, but I can't. It's just... Half my time preparing for a message is hacking out information. I can't say that. I don't have time. would love to say that. That's, I, I, it's, it's, it's the cost of loving the Word of God, I guess, if you could say it that way. Verse 10, how then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised. Sir, all right, I'm going to have to say this word a few times. But while uncircumcised. Verse 11, and he received a sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, <laughs> that the righteousness might be imputed to them also, by faith, that is. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Actually, I said 17 years. It was 14 years. So, there. Don't, you don't have to correct me. I beat you to it. Some 450 years before the Mosaic Covenant came along, before the law of Moses, you know, from Exodus on. Uh, Delivered by, codified by Moses, upheld by the prophets. Abraham had been walking with God, obeying and pleasing God without ritual. He sacrificed out of this the love of his heart for God. But that didn't make him righteous. It just demonstrated that God was already working in his heart in grace. The right had nothing to do with his salvation. And, and actually, he was, as Gentile Christians, without the law of Moses. And accepted by God. So circumcision did not contribute to his salvation. It attested to it. But it was more of a personal thing. You, I mean, it was something that he would have to tell you. 
talk to you about. Like our water baptism, for instance. We get baptized, and then we go around unbelievers. We don't show them, here's me getting baptized. I mean, it's, 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 it's deeper than all of that. No pun intended, but water, baptism, deeper. The point is that I know I've been baptized. That's what I need. My, my head needs to wrap around the spiritual things before I can be used. Okay, what happened when the Jews were sent to uh, conquer the promised land under Joshua's leadership? What's one of the first things they had to do? Just turn the knives on themselves. They had to be, the troops had to follow this rite of circumcision. And nothing has changed. We let a man examine himself to see if he is in the faith or not. And so the principle is irreversible. God accepts souls based on belief. And if you got nothing else out of this morning, you got this. It is by grace you are saved through faith. And we don't tamper with that. And it is faith alone. Nothing else. And if you try to say, I'm going to trust you, Lord, but I'm also going to do this, you cancel out the faith. You're not trusting in the work of Christ. When Christ said it was finished, he was very serious about that. There were no jokes made from the cross. Everything he said was profound. And the last thing he said it is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. Well, um, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, simple, simple truths from the gospel that are made complicated by the enemy and often by well-meaning believers. May we remember to keep it very simple. Christ died for sinners, of which I am chief. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we could never have afforded to earn. Thank you for just requiring one thing, that, it, that we believe you, that we trust you, that we don't argue with you about how you're going to save our soul. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you've not opened your heart to Jesus Christ, you're dead in your sins. God is not your friend. You can reverse that because he wants to be your friend. The wrath of God abides on those, the Bible tells us, who have not the Christ. I mentioned, I read from Jude 15 about the ungodly and the wrath of God. It is a very sobering reality that you do not want to be a victim of. You can be God's friend as Abraham. Abraham is called in the Bible God's friend. All you have to do is believe. If you'd like to believe, if you'd like to become a Christian, then make this prayer and God will receive you. For without it, you are his opponent. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I sin against your commandments. I sin against you. And I come to you and I ask you straight out that you would forgive me because of Christ Jesus who died in my place and took my judgment upon himself so that I could simply believe and be received. I give my life to you right here, right now, and I ask from this day forward that your grace would be upon my life, that Jesus would be my Savior and he would be my Lord. 
And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they be unashamed of it. And when the invitation is given, may they step forward and say, I believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.